and welcome to the final episode of the first series of the Nurture podcast. This week we will conclude this series by discussing the sixth principle of Nurture. Nurture is important for the development of well-being. The other five principles previously covered are the environment offers a safe base, children's learning is understood developmentally, language is a vital means of communication, all behaviours communication, and transitions are significant in the lives of children. We hope by now to have raised your awareness of nurture and emphasised the importance of making social and emotional connections with our children and young people. Together, we can build positive, relationship-based communities by embedding these principles into our minds in daily practice, in order to fully meet the needs of all of our individuals within our educational establishments. first to look at what we mean by well-being. Most of you will be familiar with the Shinari well-being indicators. By using this one familiar model, it means that children and young people, along with practitioners and their families, are all on the same page when it comes to well-being. We can also therefore use it when discussing nurture and how we go about supporting our young people with their physical and mental health. Well-being is influenced by children's individual experiences and changing needs as they grow. The Shinari indicators highlight the eight factors that matter when talking about well-being and state that every child or young person should be safe, healthy, achieving, nurtured, active, respected, responsible and included at home, in schools and within their wider communities. We know that traumatic experiences can have unintended consequences for our young people. Any kind of trauma, such as one of the recognised adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, can have a massive impact on a child or young person. So too can life-changing experiences, such as the global pandemic we've all experienced over the last couple of years. Trauma can also stem from other things such as bullying which may be targeted at individuals as a result of their sexuality, disability or race. And we couldn't discuss well-being without mentioning those care-experienced children. We know that their lives are often full of difficult and distressing transitions and changes. In Scotland, The Promise is responsible for driving the work of change demanded by the findings of the Independent Care Review. And in October 2016, the First Minister made a commitment that Scotland would come together and love its most vulnerable children and give them the childhood they deserve. This is really good news, but it is, however, important to be aware that the evidence concludes that the higher the ACE score, the more likely our young people will suffer into adulthood. We also know that there are things which can help protect our young people from some of the devastating and prohibiting effects of trauma. By having a trauma-informed approach, we can support our children and young people to feel valued and heard, and we can help to build their self-esteem, which is vital if they are to start building that resilience that they need in order to cope with challenges and adversity. To do this, we have to start by reframing our conversations and beliefs. 
Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey talk about this more in their book, What's Happened to You, in which they reframe trauma from what's wrong with you. We have to be alert to re-traumatizing pupils, which I know would never be any of our intentions. So by considering what's happened, we can be more empathetic and then we can start to understand the reasons why some of our pupils are distressed, struggling with their mental health, or indeed disengaged with their learning. You'll be familiar with the My World Triangle, which was developed to support wellbeing assessments. However, we can also use this to understand the three fundamental building blocks which all underpin resilience. A resilience-based approach focuses on maximising the likelihood of a better outcome for young people by building a protective network around them. While we can't always protect our young people from further adversity, we can help them develop their resilience, which we know can help them recover from difficulties and enhance the likelihood of a better long-term outcome. We've mentioned this quite a few times in other episodes now, but in this episode we're going to take it a little bit further and think about how we can help children develop their resilience within our setting. Gilligan, 1997, states that all children need a secure base where they feel a sense of belonging and security, good self-esteem or an internal sense of self-worth, and finally, a sense of self-efficacy, or to rephrase that, a sense of power, that is a sense of mastery and control, along with an accurate understanding of their personal strengths and limitations. So how does all this relate to you? Well, we can provide all these things to children in our classrooms. We can start by modelling kindness consistently. And by doing so, we can teach young people a way, perhaps a new way, of reacting. Emotions are normal and we can't always be joyful. However, we can be kind, even in times of adversity. Some children won't have experienced much kindness and you may have noticed some of your learners who are a bit unsure about what to do with kind reactions or don't really know how to react themselves when things go wrong. Therefore, it's our job to demonstrate kind reactions and show our young people how to be kind to others. That way, everyone feels like they belong. We can also allow children to fail and teach them how to cope with failure. Some children and adults will find that difficult, especially if someone else appears to be winning we do know, however, that this learning teaches resilience. It gives a starting point for the next time they fail. We all fail, but we need to teach explicitly that that's okay. And in failure, we learn things. Consequently, this will help our young people to feel secure and it will encourage them to try new things, even if they're scared of failing. Having a class rota helps to build self-esteem and purpose by giving responsibility to our learners. And in a nurture room, there should always be an opportunity for a snack time because this provides such a great opportunity to bring those skills in, that sense of responsibility, good routine and polite table manners. 
Children can take it in turns to lay the table and serve the snack, while encouraging others to use plate table manners and learn to sit and wait. We all need to feel in control of some part of our lives, and so allowing children to make these choices about things that affect them can make everyone feel part of the same team, as children do tend to be more willing to comply when they've had a little bit of agency over it. A few simple ways of doing this is to give them snack options. If you have a designated snack time, they could maybe select items from a shopping list or even better help to go and purchase these. Or perhaps during a time of teaching and learning, they could choose between two simple activities that you've planned. Maybe if you'd like a child to line up and you've recognised that this is something they do find really difficult, you could give them the choice about where they stand in the line or suggest that they hold the door open for everyone. That might just be enough to persuade them. Boundaries are very important when it comes to nurturing and well-being, and we must teach what's right from wrong. So although we're saying it is important to have flexibility, there does also need to be that sense of non-negotiables. Setting these boundaries early using clear, consistent language really does help with this. So too does teaching children what might happen if they do something out with these boundaries. You can, of course, use storytelling and social stories for this, but sometimes children will push up against these boundaries, and it's at this point that it's really important to reiterate the rules, especially when it comes to safety. Natural consequences are, of course, the best, rather than punitive punishments. So, for example, if a child breaks something, then that simply means that they can no longer play with it. If they hurt someone, once they become regulated again with your assistance, then you can have that discussion about how that made the other person feel and how likely it is that they're going to continue to play with each other or be their friend if they were to continue to hurt them. And more importantly, what they need to do to make this right again. It's also important that we allow time for celebrating achievements. It could be something like building a tower from Lego or it could be moving up to the next swim class. It could be they've shown some kindness to someone that day or followed a class rule. It's useful to have an end of day plenary session and essential in a nurture room. Having the time to discuss what's gone well and what children could do to improve is also so important for building self-esteem and allowing children to reflect and then work on next steps. It also gives other children a chance to say well done to their peers. We as educators should always be looking out for any celebratory moments. Young people have always done something you and they can be proud of. And some achievements of course will seem bigger than others, but small achievements can be huge for those who are never celebrated. Finally, be predictable. Some children have so much unpredictability in their lives. That's why they're perhaps in a nurture group, or maybe they're not but they're in your classroom and they're finding it difficult. By demonstrating that your reactions and actions will never change regardless of their behaviour, shows them that they're safe and that you'll help support and care for them. spoke about life's stresses and strains in a previous episode and mentioned how difficult it is for a dysregulated adult to help calm and support a dysregulated child. Good organisational policies and processes are therefore needed in order to promote and protect staff well-being. 
Schools are always super busy places and COVID-19 has only added to this and put extra pressures on staff. In addition to this, the usual pressures are all still present. This is where good structures and permission to de-stress comes into play. Senior leaders and managers can help by having open door policies, mental health drop-ins for staff or even provide informal relaxation spaces which could have magazines, books, relaxing music or some simple home comforts for staff to enjoy. This is in addition to ensuring that staff are nurtured and cared for by enabling open conversations and ensuring that practitioners have the time to plan lessons as well as connect and communicate with each other and their management. Allowing staff time to attune to their whole classes and make decisions based on need will undoubtedly help staff and child wellbeing. When a teacher is given permission to notice boredom, anxiety or disengagement with their learning, then they can build in regular breaks, facilitate play-based approaches and allow for movement breaks which benefits everyone. Having staff include these short five-minute brain breaks into their weekly timetable can help promote well-being and ensure that time is dedicated to this. There are also some approaches you as the practitioner can take. Lots of you will be aware of what you can do for your own well-being, but we think it's important to remind you, even briefly, at the most basic level, and this is particularly relevant for newly qualified teachers, try to prioritise things. Write lists and categorise your to-do list into sections of what needs doing now and what can wait. It's always tempting to get ahead, especially when it comes to planning. However, not everything has to be done today and it's paramount that you take time off. Also, delegation is key. Always make friends with the jammy. And if you're a teacher, ask support staff to help you where possible and ensure the children are working harder than you are. That rotor we spoke about earlier will help reduce your workload and therefore your stress levels. As will teaching skills such as laying out a jotter so you don't have to print copious worksheets. Also consider taking some time to relax during the school day. Apps such as Headspace and Calm provide 10 minute mindfulness and meditation activities which can be done during lunch without compromising on your social time. Finally, get outdoors, either in your personal life or in school. Take the children out in the fresh air and take learning outdoors as much as you can. It'll definitely improve everyone's mental and physical health. We also want to mention that if you are struggling with your mental health, there's a free confidential counselling service you can access for support. It's run by the Able Futures and there's no waiting list. You can phone, email or video call their telephone number, which is 0800-321-3137. They also have a website which is dedicated to mental health in work support. We just want to finish today by thinking about something that struck a chord with us. You may have heard of Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, which is a five-stage model stating the needs of all human beings starting from the most basic psychological needs to self-fulfillment. When those needs are not met for our young people, we need to consider what those who are working with them can do in order to support. 
Kim Golding therefore took Maslow's model and adapted it, particularly for dyadic development psychotherapists working with children who have experienced trauma. However, her findings are useful for us all. Her model firstly shifts from a five-stage model to a six-stage one. It tells us that we need to first ensure children feel safe, after which we can then develop a relationship with them. Safety and relationships allows us to help comfort and co-regulate children in times of crisis and distress. We are then able to empathise and help children to reflect on events. Practitioners are then able to build the resilience we've been discussing and resource things that a young person may need. Finally, we can then explore the trauma and mourn losses. As in previous episodes, we'll now finish with our three top tips. Tip number one, there's lots of information around trauma out there. Consider familiarising yourself with the works of Dr Bruce Perry, Kim Golding and visit The Promise to find out more about new legislation which will help our most vulnerable children. Tip number two, remember that some children aren't celebrated, not even birthdays are given. Build time into your day to celebrate even the smallest of their achievements. Last but not least, tip number three, a dysregulated adult cannot help co-regulate a young person. Staff wellbeing is more important now than ever. Consider what you can do to support yourself and others. Thank you to each and every one of you for listening to the first ever series of The Nurture Podcast. We now hope that you've gained a deeper understanding of the six principles of nurture and you now feel you can apply these principles in your daily work with our children and young people. Thank you.